as Spence said uh, before, if you're visiting today for the first time or maybe second or something, welcome especially to you guys. Glad that you're with us for one of our, our gatherings here. And we'd love to hear from you too, whether that's through those communication cards or just kind of by email or just come find uh, one of us leader types maybe up front afterwards after the service. We'd love to meet you and hear your story a bit and, and talk if you'd like to do that. Uh, but we are right now in the middle of a series in, um, or not really in a book right now, we're in a, a series called Big Questions, which for the summer for us is a time we are answering questions from the church. So questions we've gotten from people from our church uh, that um, are mostly topical. That could be a question about a particular Bible passage as well. We got a couple of those this summer. Uh, but these are uh, still theological questions that we are using as opportunities to talk about the gospel, talk about the nature of God or the church, uh, ourselves maybe in light of that, in the shadow of that, uh, or some particular uh, question about theology that, um, that might be even more unique than that. And so uh, today we're just going to dive right in. It's a great question today. I'll uh, state the question, kind of unpack it a little bit here, and we'll just dive right in because there's a lot to say about it. Uh, but the question is this. How should our end times theology impact the way we live today? And so a couple of things on end times theology, quick, if that's a new uh, concept or maybe there's some baggage that you bring in uh, around that. We kind of all do, uh, in a sense. Some of us, uh, maybe, maybe you don't because it's a brand new thing, and that's actually probably better. But, uh, but if you do, uh, end times theology, or by that we mean our understanding biblically and theologically of what the end of history will entail. And so... One word I'll use a couple of times today is eschatology, which comes from the Greek eschatos or eschaton, which means the last things. And so eschatology is the study of the last things, theologically. So if you pick up a systematic theology, theology textbook or something like that, or maybe it's a book just on eschatology, uh, that's what's uh, being referred to, or there might just be a chapter in that text on these things towards the end of the book, because sometimes it just makes sense. We'll talk about the last things at, at the very end. So... Uh, but what we mean by that, though, is, is, again, the end of history, but most notably details surrounding Jesus' return, his judgment of the living and the dead, the final destruction of evil, and what we call the eternal state. So uh, that just means an eternal hell for the unsaved. We talked about hell a few weeks ago. One of you asked about that. Is there a hell, essentially? And so we talked about that. And a new earth for the saved. So a hell for the unsaved, separation from God forever but then a new, redeemed, uh, kind of replenished earth where Jesus will return to. Uh, God himself will walk with us again. We'll see him face to face. Jesus will wipe tears from his eyes, it says, and, and the, at the beginning of chapter 21 of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. He'll kind of just hold our faces and look us in the eye and say, death itself could not keep me away from you, my son or my daughter. I love you. That's kind of what we have to look forward to as, as Christians. That's the end of of the end, essentially. And so Jesus' Advent, then, we talk about Advent, too, as Christians sometimes, and there's Advent season, if you have a tradition that celebrated Advent, a little more pointedly. Advent just means arrival. But Jesus' Advent is two-staged theologically. And Hebrews 9.28 is kind of helpful here, so I'll just read from this quick. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, because he already did that for us, but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him, i.e. the church. So right now then we live in the in-between, looking back to how he saved us, but also looking ahead to his return, which uh, could be eminent. It could be at any, at any time. We'll talk about that a little, bit, a little bit later on. So the question then, the big question for today is a great question, but the question is essentially how should our understanding of these things affect how we live now? And I think embedded in the question is the idea that Christians 
have historically have had different viewpoints about this stuff, and it affects how we live and how we teach the Bible and how we talk. And though we all agree Jesus is coming back, the details get fuzzy. And some might give themselves over to this whole thing, details and times and dates and seasons, almost too much, obsessively focusing on the wrong things uh, when the Bible doesn't go into that much detail surrounding exact times and, and dates. And this is what I love about the way this question was worded when we got it, is this is actually the way the Bible goes about answering the question. And so it's a little less, in other words, about the the kind of the what or details around the what, but more about kind of the why should that matter or how should we then live. And so exactly how Christ comes back or exactly when Jesus returns, we don't know. But when the Bible does talk about eschatology and Christ's return, it talks more about why does this matter now and, and how then shall we live kind of, um, kind of statements and teachings. And so the question itself really just steps, stems right into um, biblical questions. We'll look at some of them and, and the teachings of Christ and so forth. We'll get to some of those in, in a second. So with all of that said, it's a great question. Thank you to, um, to you who, who asked it. We always keep these anonymous, but to you who, who did. It was, it was someone from the church. We, we're grateful for all these great questions we've gotten this summer. But four angles to this today, um, and I'll, I'll say this again. I, I think I may have even kind of alluded to this a, a second ago, but these are, and we've said this a lot this summer already, but these are sermons, not classes. And so what we mean by that is that we're not going to be comprehensive today. There's a lot to say about the, this great question and this great area of theology. Uh, but we want to use these questions, we want to answer them uh, as best we can, but also use them as kind of platforms to jump off of to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's the main focus today. And, and it's our conviction that all areas of theology orbits like planets around the sun uh, the son being the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. So whatever the topic is about theology, they somehow kind of find their, their origin or the center of the solar system of those things is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we'll get to that a little bit later as well, as the Bible does. But four angles today to this, and in one sense, no particular order. There's kind of a, a method of the madness here, but in one sense, no particular order. Just four big things as, as we ask the question, how should our end times theology impact the way we live today? First, understand that no one knows the dates and times of Jesus' return precisely. So we were talking about this a little bit before, but a couple more things on this. Whenever the New Testament talks about the end, so especially if this is new to you, whenever the New Testament talks about the end or Christ's return and, and judgment and the eternal state and all of that, it talks about it in terms of surprise and being caught off guard. So kind of like a, a sudden rainstorm uh, might hit us without a cloud in the sky, like a sun shower or something like that, when it catches us off guard. Or the Bible refers to it kind of like a thief in the night when you're asleep. And Jesus more explicitly says in Acts 1-7, the beginning, this is after his resurrection, but he's speaking to the disciples who ask about these matters. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or dates. The Father, God the Father, so Jesus is God the Son saying this, but here he's saying, God my Father, or God the Father, has set these dates by his own authority, and it's not for you to know what they are. And Jesus even says elsewhere in the book of Matthew that he doesn't know. He doesn't know the dates and times that were set by the Father. And so, which is almost impossible to understand how that can be the case. We sang about the Trinity just a second ago, how as Christians we believe in a triune God, three persons. There's one God, but he exists eternally in three persons, and each one of those persons are fully and equally God, but they're not each other at the same time. So 
almost impossible to understand how this can be the case, but it is the case. Jesus says, God the Father knows the dates, but I don't. And just general rule of thumb, if Jesus doesn't know, you don't know. <laughs> All right? I don't know. So just, just if, if Christ doesn't, if the Son of God doesn't know these things, then, then we can just rest in that. And I think there's an admonition here as well as a gentle encouragement. So a loving but firm rebuke maybe for people who do claim to know the dates and times and who get too excited about blood moons and who profit off of it by writing books and kind of raising excitement over these things. So a loving but firm rebuke for those types of people, but also an encouragement for all of us, wherever we are with this particular era of theology, to not burden ourselves with things that are too far above us. So I think like, you know, a parent, I have three kids, like a, a parent might say to a child who asks really big questions, or they might, like a parent might think this when they get a really big, detailed question from their child, even if I told you, you wouldn't understand. You ever thought of that as a parent before? Even if I told you the answer, you wouldn't understand. So you're kind of thinking in your mind, how can I give a simpler answer to this because they won't understand the complexities of it? There's encouragement in that. I think God knows this. There's so much to him that we don't understand. He can't fit into our boxes and our preconceived notions. He he's a, has a degree of mystery to him. He, he's not like us, even though he's, he created us in his image, and so we're kind of like him in some capacity. We reflect him. He is distinctly not us at, at the same time. And so instead... We're encouraged to focus on things we can know in the Bible. There's a lot we can know. This is a big book that God is like self-disclosed in. He's, he's revealed himself through the words of, of the Bible and in a sense through creation as well, but especially, particularly, especially through Jesus Christ and what he did and said and what he accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. So, so especially that. And the simple fact that he is returning. So there are areas of this whole doctrine we can understand. He is returning. And all Christians for all time have believed that. It's just, again, the details uh, get, get fuzzy. All right. Another reason, though, I think that these things, and there are other areas of theology, too, that are kept from us, but these things about dates and times and particular details to Jesus' return, that these things are kept from us is because mystery undergirds and emphasizes grace. Mystery undergirds and emphasizes the idea of grace. In other words, Claiming to know things that aren't meant to be known is really close to claiming to earn things that weren't meant to be earned. Claiming to know things that are not meant to be known is really close. We might not be thinking this when we're claiming those things, but it's really close lifestyle-wise and just kind of posture-wise to claiming to earn things that weren't meant to be earned, namely salvation. But we're saved by grace, not by works, right? So Jesus' grace, like, like it surprises us in a way, so will Jesus' return surprise us. And in the surprising is the idea that God saves us in his way. We don't save ourselves in our way. This is why Christians are, are called so often in the Bible to wait on God. It never says God waits for you or for me to get it right or to clean your life up not waiting for you. He says, wait for me. I will show you how good I am. I will show you how loving I am. I will reveal myself in my own way, in my own time, in the way that I choose. And that, that, that choice for him is through his son, Jesus. As return then relates to this whole idea. When he says that I know the times and dates, it's again close to him saying, I know the way that I will save you. So wait for it. Look for it. Yearn for it. Pray for it. Expect it. Receive it. Don't work for it. 
So God graciously reminds us of this by way of saying in love, like in Acts 1-7, well, Jesus says this, it's not for you to know. That's a loving thing because that's close to him saying, it's not for you to save yourself. Saying it's not for you to know is close to saying it's not for you to save yourself. All right, so that's the first, first point, kind of a, disc, uh, kind of a you know, almost a pre-point in a way, but a huge piece to this whole idea of eschatology and understanding how that lives. Because if we understand it this way, this will make us a little bit better at waiting and okay with saying, I don't know. Maybe saying, I don't know sometimes is some, one of the best things you can say to someone who's not a Christian yet because in your I don't know, you're saying, say by grace, not by works. It relates to that idea. And so second then, kind of related to this, but also you guys are going to say, you're talking on both sides of your mouth now because I kind of am because the Bible does. But secondly, understand that we are in the end times now. I don't have time to go into this uh, in a full-blown manner today. I kind of mentioned that before. But I will share these two things quick to, to prove this and show this. Acts 2, 16 to 17 in the New Testament. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, this is after Jesus was raised and ascended. The Holy Spirit of God has been given to his people. And Peter's preaching essentially the first Christian sermon ever. And so he's preaching to the crowds, but notice this parenthetical here at the beginning, to the crowds about what the Spirit was doing in them at that very moment. Okay, so what he's saying here is about the Spirit, what the Spirit's doing through Peter and these other apostles who are, who are preaching the gospel in a Spirit-filled manner it, at that very moment. This is what he says. This, what's happening there, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. So in other words, they believed they were living in the last days, even though this happened 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years have gone by since. Hebrews 1 and 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by Jesus. This is also written 2,000 years ago. In these last days of history, this is, this is how God has, has spoken. So, in other words, Jesus Christ ushered in the end times, or the last days. The end, then, to us is not just future, it's present. Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and the establishment of Jesus' church were the beginning of the end of history. And we live in that time now. That's where we live. And so, on the one hand, implications for this, you know, on the one hand, this puts more emphasis when we think this way about what are the last days? We think this way about eschatology. On the one hand, this puts more emphasis rightly on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because even though we're still waiting for Jesus' second advent and the full righting of all wrongs and the full destruction of evil and, and death, we're not really waiting for anything new either at the same time. There's nothing more to come than Jesus' death and resurrection other than what's downstream of that which does include his return and the new earth and all that good stuff. So there is more, but nothing really new at the same time. In other words, you can think about it this way too. Our hopeful future exists because of this particular past, which, which is why even though in the New Testament, you know, the, the death and resurrection and ascension and the return of Jesus are all part of the gospel, the good news, the New Testament spends more time encouraging the church with the death and resurrection part. You could even say it's more important 
because without it, it wouldn't have the second part. And so the church then is continually pointed backwards more than they're pointed forward. So they are pointed forwards. That's good for us. We need to do that as Christians. This is what God wants. But more often in the letters of the New Testament, you see us looking back. Who is God in the face of Jesus Christ? Who is God there? Why did he send his son? How exactly did he die? And what did he do on that cross? And was the tomb really empty or not? These are the bigger questions. So on the one hand, it puts more emphasis rightly on the death and resurrection of Jesus. On the other hand, this affects how we live now, right? I mean, if this is a mindset shift. If we believe we're in the last, you know, days now, and I don't know where you guys are coming today when you came in here, like you brought this question in yourself, or if you, if you think that the last days are still future, or if you have kind of baggage around that or not. I mean baggage like always negatively, by the way, just if you have thoughts about this yet or not, right or wrong. Uh, but... It could be a big mindset shift. And if it is, all of a sudden this heightens the importance of everything we do and say and think if we're in the last days now. So what if we read the book of Revelation, for example, the last book in the New Testament which talks about these kind of apocalyptic things and includes kind of clear descriptions of some things surrounding the end and all of that. So if you, don't, if you haven't read this book before, just bear with me for one second, but I'm going to use some of its language here. But what if we read Revelation as though it depicted the present? and not just the future. And there are clear future elements to it as well, obviously, the last couple of chapters. But what if most of it was actually depicting the present? The last days of the last 2,000 years. What if that was the book of Revelation? If so, all of a sudden, the book's message is urgent. It is bearing on our life now. You know, or, or what if we looked around the room today, every week when we come to church, what if we believe kind of a la Revelation or other teachings of the New Testament that spiritually speaking in the invisible realm, the spiritual realm, that right now in this very room, angels and demons were, were fighting for souls. That Jesus through his church remained more powerful and sovereign over all of them, helping his church to preach and sing and eat the gospel and communion. And he worked through the love and the prayers of God's people to pull people from the clutches of hell. What if we thought that? And that idea in Revelation of how people line up with either the devil or Jesus. You know, we don't live in a time of neutrality now, but a time of hostility towards Jesus. Like, like I was before I was saved. Like all of you were, if you're a Christian, before you were saved. And like, we still have a little, bit, a little bit of that in our heart. We don't want his rule. We live in this time of hostility, demonic hostility, that we all shared past tense or share present or some of us will still share if we don't believe the gospel and switch sides. We don't have all this time just to think things over, in other words. We're in a war. And so with that mindset and with kind of revelation helping here a little bit, now are the last days when Jesus' blood has been spilt for the church. Now are the last days when he roars like a lion against evil, sin, and demonic scheming. When he rescues us from the abusive hands of sin, when the, when the church, kind of like in chapter 11 in Revelation, pours forth fire from their mouths as they preach the gospel, and when God calls out to sinners, like in Revelation 18, come out of the spiritual harlot of sin and death in the world. Come to me, bathe in my son's blood and be forgiven and be renamed and be marked as my people forever. What if that was happening all over the world right now and right now in this very room? Not just for a future generation of of Christians who will especially get that message. But what if it's now? Because we're in the last days now. 
all of a sudden it has bearing, and we can't just turn away. And that's the reality. Now is the day that all of that revelation imagery and, and more is happening. So back to the question, how should the future inform the present? In part, urgency. And I don't mean fear, not fear. I don't mean obsession with dates and times, but urgency that comes with war. The type of urgency that comes with war. And more on this in, in just a, a little bit. Before we get there, though, let's look at a third thing here, and that is uh, a third layer to this in response to the question, and that is heeding Jesus' warning. We'll look at Matthew 25, 1 to 13. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can, but I've got it here on, on screen. This is a, a big part of this, huge deal. Jesus speaking before his death speaks in a parable about the end, and he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch there, this is the point, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. <clears throat> All right, there's a lot going on here. Here's what I want to do with this today. One of the most important things to understand regarding passages like this in the Bible, that, and there are several, maybe you could even say many, but several that are explicitly like this. We'll look at one more after this too. Um, is to think about how exactly the Bible talks about the people Jesus is coming back for. So how are they described? Who are these virgins? What are they like? When Jesus says, I'm coming back for people, how does he describe them? And, and then also, what does he not say about them? And so if we ask that question, this is kind of what we see, at least in Matthew 20, through the lens of Matthew 25. They are, they're virgins, they're wise, they're waiting, they're prepared, they're eager to see him, and they're carrying oil figuratively. I'll talk more about that in a, in a minute. But they're not necessarily described as good people, right? This is huge. What are they like and what are they, what are they not like? They are like brides getting ready for like a wedding day. They're ready to see Christ, but they're not described as good people. Nothing said about how good they are morally. So the question for the bridegroom is not, I'm taking the five best virgins, the most pure, the, one, the ones who've loved the most and have done the most. He's saying, I'm taking the ready ones, the prepared ones, the ones who are waiting for my return and are, who are eager to see me. Taking oil with our lamps means that we take the light of the gospel seriously. And we actually believe that Jesus is our bridegroom, and we know him. We know his voice, and he knows us. 
See how different that is? That's the question right there. That, that is like, that, that's what hangs in the crux. What, what are we going to do with Jesus? Taking oil with our lamps means we're prepared. Taking oil with our lamps means that we talk to him on a regular basis and we're, we know that when he appears, it's a good thing for the church, not a fearful thing. I think Hebrews 9.28 is helpful again. I don't think I have this up here, but um, Hebrews 9.28 again says, Christians are those who eagerly wait for his return. And so it's like simultaneously in Jesus' parable, it's like this um, challenging or encouraging thing first, but also this urgent kind of um, prepare yourself thing at the same time. It's almost like it's an exhortation, more of a challenging teaching. And that is saved by grace, not by work. Saved by being the bride of Christ. And that, that's just like a, that, that's an identity piece. Not, not a challenge to be good or, or to do more for him, but to be ready for his return, believing that he saves you with his death and resurrection. That's the encouraging grace-filled piece here. The challenge is, do we really believe that? Do we really know him? Is the idea of the gospel just a fact? Like it's a state, like I acknowledge it's in the Bible, I understand the nuts and bolts of the gospel, or do we have oil flask in hand, ready for his return and excited to see him? Are, are we prepared by being washed by his blood? Are we confident in that? Or maybe think of the flip side. Are we scared because we're trusting in our own good works to save us. That will elicit fear, because if we believe that, there's more work to do, and we've never done enough. Or are we sleepy because we thought we had time to live carelessly before the end, and not really deal with what Jesus' death and resurrection actually meant? Are we fearful? Are we sleepy, living carelessly? We just think that There'll, there'll be time in the future to really come to terms with the fact that Jesus actually, as a human being, walked out of that tomb 2,000 years ago. It actually happened. Uh, I'll deal with that later. It's like it almost like doesn't let, we can do that, of course, but if you come to terms with the gospel, it has bearing. A human being who is the son of God really did that. A human being just like us. Do we believe it or not? Do we believe he's king or not? Do we bend the knee to his rule? or not? Do we believe we fought our battles, or not? Do we believe we're saved by grace, or works? Are we fear, fearful, or eager to see him, or fearful because we believe that we save ourselves? All these questions matter, and, and the good news here, guys, is that readiness comes by faith. And so when I say this, and if you feel as I'm saying this, I don't feel I actually am ready. I haven't heard that type of gospel before, or I've been treating this thing as though it's like a, a given in my life or like it's just a, a piece of the pie of my life but not like the whole thing or whatever you're thinking. The good news here is that you can be ready instantly by faith right now where you sit. The message isn't go home and get your life together. The message is do you believe the gospel? Are you a bride by, by like identity or not? Do you believe? that Jesus is the Son of God who rose again for you in love. So it can happen instantly. That's the good news. It's not a burden. It's, it's a response. It's a, it's a challenge, you could say, or it's a heavy thing in the sense that it, it has bearing, but it's not a burden, as in it's up to you to go kind of figure this thing out yourself. This also, this whole piece plays, plays out further in this fourth layer. 
So we'll, we'll go there now and talk a little bit more about this. But the fourth layer is let the gospel of future grace inform your present life now. So kind of a catch-all thing there. But I want to use 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11 uh, as kind of a launch pad for this. So let's read this in full to be a couple of things about it. A new to a real historical New Testament church in the city of Thessalonica that were asking these same types of questions that we were asked today in light of the sermon. So when is he coming back? What's going to happen? And when is this going to happen? And what does that mean for our life now? And the Apostle Paul encouraged. So he says this. Now concerning the times and seasons of Jesus' Jesus's return, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Isn't that our culture? Peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, Christian, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. All right, this is another fantastic passage on this question. Uh, Just a couple things I want to say about it. Um, I guess, but first, one thing I like about this is that it lumps together a lot of what we've already been talking about. So it brings in, for example, war imagery and readiness imagery and love uh, kind of encouragement and urgency. But it also brings in the question of identity, and that's where I want to go for just a couple of seconds here. Paul says here that, and this is in direct response to the question. So if the question today even is, how should the future inform our our lives now? This is a a direct response. Know that you are children of light. So speaking to Christians in the room, especially right now, this is who you are. You are children of light. You should think this. You should know this. You You should have your identity reaffirmed in this. Know this. So for the world, in other words, for others who are not Christians, the end will be like a thief in the night. It'll be sudden for everybody, a surprise to everybody, like we talked about before, but it'll have that negative thief-like connotation for people who are not Christians. God is not a thief. He's not saying God is like a thief. He's saying it'll have that kind of feel uh, for people who are, who are unsaved. He's saying, but that's not you. You are awake. You are sober, spiritually speaking. You're awake, spiritually speaking. You're sober. Spiritually speaking, you're not of the darkness. You are inherently children of of light. And this is a very easy phrase to to misinterpret. And there there are a lot of them in the Bible. But but this is one especially that's easy to read over. Because from a worldly perspective, what would we think if someone was called a child of light? What's the first thing that would come to mind from like a worldly perspective? What does that mean? You're a child of light. What does that mean? Probably you're like a good person, right? 
Like you, you do a lot of light type things. You don't hang out in dark corners at night and do kind of these shady deals, you know, or something like that. Like you're, you're a, a child of light. You're a pretty upstanding, good person. But that's not what the Bible says about light. This is how we, you know, we look at phrases like this. One of the questions in your Bible reading you should ask is, how does the Bible use this terminology elsewhere? And how does it inform how you read it here? And the answer to that is, when we look at light elsewhere, this idea of what is it? We can even ask, what is light? In 1 John 1, 5, John says, God is light. And in John 1, 9, the same author, speaking of Jesus, the true light, who is Christ, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so what this means then is to be a child of light is to be a child of God. To be a child of light is to be a child of Jesus. Not to be a super good moral individual who has light in themselves. The Bible never says that. It actually says the opposite. It says we are of the, the darkness before we were in Christ, but only because Christ shone on us and gave us his Holy Spirit who we called children of light. And to have the light is to have him. Because light means Jesus, not good works. And this then helps us understand the rest of the passage. And so the idea of staying sober, he's speaking in metaphorical language here. The idea of spirit, being spiritually sober is, um, he likens it here to putting on, this is kind of where he mixes metaphors, but he says all of a sudden we're in war. So we're putting on a breastplate, and the breastplate is faith and love, and a helmet, and the helmet is the hope of being saved by God in the end. We're like, we're going to battle, and, and we're putting on armor to prevent ourselves from getting harmed. So all of this is, is this all defensive or offensive imagery here? It's all defensive, right? It's, it's protection for the body and for the soul. And so what I like about it is he's saying staying sober looks like staying in the faith. This would be a perfect opportunity here for Paul to say, if what I meant by being a child of light was to be a good person, then here's a list of things to do with your life that are kind of morally upright. But he doesn't. He says to be a child of light is to be in a battle and to wear faith, which is just trust in how good God is and how powerful he is in the battles he fights for us. We wear that. We put it on. And more than that, we wear love. And because love is a defensive imagery here, it can't mean our love. This is not our love. When it says put on love, he's not referring to you loving others. It's defensive imagery. It has to be someone else's love that we wear, namely God's love for you and for me, for his church. And so being grounded then in his sacrificial love that wore hell for us on that cross 2,000 years ago means that we're protected. In other words, and again, your good works are not called the breastplate here. Your good works are never called defensive measures or breastplates or shields in the Bible, ever. So stop living that way if you do. Your good works, if you wear your good works like a breastplate, the devil will slice through it like a knife through warm butter. Is it a warm knife through butter? Whatever the thing is, but you know what I'm saying. It won't help. It won't stop him. He will, he will destroy you if you wear your morality. But instead, what this says, what God's word says is, God's love for you on that cross 
your faith, your trust in that love. Wearing the salvation he gives you like a helmet, that will withstand, as it says elsewhere in the Bible, the fiery darts of the devil, the lies he spews out, the spiritual attacks of a variety of, of measures and types. His love is it. His love is most important. His love is the gospel. And that's what we wear. Only Jesus' love can. And faith in his love, faith in his death for us, only that matters in the end. This is what Paul says actually in Galatians. What matters for the Christian, this is it. What matters in the end? Faith working through love. That's it. This is what matters. Faith in the gospel working through love for other Christians to demonstrate how God has loved them. This is what the church should be, how God has loved them first on that cross. And so with these four layers then, a, a few things in conclusion. This is a kind of a summary, but also um, let me hear this because this is kind of new and this is, I think this is, a, this is the answer to this question. If our end times theology consists of believing we live in the last times now, that Jesus could return at any moment, that he will return to judge the unsaved, but to reveal himself as a loving Savior to all who believe in his grace, then that informs our life now in these two big ways. The first is, we have to urgently, Christian or not a Christian in the room right now, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news, and the center, kind of the, 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 the sun of the solar system of it, is, is what happened right here. When, when the Son of God died as a human being for sinful human beings. And this, as it says here, this is how you stay sober spiritually. So if the command is stay sober, this is how we stay sober. This is the smelling salts for like our dead, drunken, sleepy souls. This is what wakes us up to be with God. This is how he wakes us up. This is how we live as a child of light. This is how we remain ready with a flask of oil in hand as a wise virgin. This is how we wait. This is how we remain hopeful and full of love towards others. This is the, only, this is the, the start, the, the middle, and the end to it. And this is how we remain eager to see Jesus as well. And so remember, always remember this. If you get nothing else from today, the eschatological message of the Bible, so the, the end times message of the Bible, is not get your life together morally. It is believe that Jesus gave his life for yours and that that is your only escape from sin and death ever. That's it. He and what he did is the only doorway. So believe that and you will be saved. If you want to think about readying your life and watching, like Jesus says, watch therefore, for the day could come at any time. If you want to think about it in those terms, as you should, that's good. Think about it in those terms or another form of language the Bible uses. But if you want to think about readiness, then think about him preparing your heart, your mind, and your soul through the lens of what he did for you. So that's the first piece and most important piece. Eschatology relates to this because he ushered in the end of history this is when it happened 
When Jesus died on that cross, he ushered in the end. And we're in that time right now. Even though it has like, there's an end game to it still. He is coming back. It's downstream of this. Believe, trust, stay sober. Understand your identity as you're a child of him because he is the light shining in the darkness on that cross. That's why the sun went out for those three hours when he was hanging on that cross or three of the six. This is how we remain ready and wise and hopeful. All right, and then second, believe Christians, so this is just for those who are Christians now in the room, believe Christian that you are at war. And if you're not a Christian yet, you're in the war, but you just might not believe that yet. So anyway, but Christian, more actively, more urgently, believe you're at war. And so I wanted to share these. It's a war, by the way, that's already been won by Jesus. There's no question about the end. But battles rage on until the final blow is dealt upon his return. There's a lot more to say about that, but it wasn't quite the focus for today. So, but just understand that. It's a war that's already been won. And Christ shares his victory with us. But battles still rage on until the final blow is dealt. But here's four verses that I think are helpful. I chose these because they deal in kind of this fourfold way uh, with, you know, what should our life look like? What does the Bible kind of like encourage us with, but make an imperative or command for us in light of what's coming in the future. It's a well-rounded scriptural picture of the Christian life. Let me read them first, and we'll, we'll describe them. Revelation 12, 11, uh, it, it's a picture, it's a heavenly picture of a present reality. And they, the church, have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony means the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude 23 says, save others by snatching them from the fire. Just like you were snatched out of the hellfire, those of you who are Christians, now someone told you about Jesus, and God reached down through that and softened your heart, and you were plucked. Do that for someone else. Like C.T. Studd kind of famously said, that I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's what I want my life to be. And that's just a big part of what the church is. Not all what the church is, as we even see here, but it's a huge piece. First Thessalonians 5.11, we just read this, but this again, in direct response to the question about how the future should inform the present, this is one of them. Encourage other Christians with these words. Encourage other Christians in your local church with these words about God's love for us, with these words about the impending return of Jesus Christ, with these words about the fact that, we didn't look at this, but how it said, you're de- you were destined to believe you're you're not destined for wrath anymore like whatever you think of when you think of future judgment it's not a bad thing because wrath's been poured out once already in history when when on the cross right it's like it's the ultimate uh, you know bypass or or go around or diversion christ bore the wrath of god in our place and so we believe in a God who pours out wrath. God doesn't say, oh, you know, sin's not that big a deal. Don't worry. God takes sin more seriously than you do and, so, and, and me. He hates it. But the way he makes kind of a go-around for, for these people he loves, for his church, for those who are being saved, is he becomes human to bear hell and wrath for us. And so like I said in, in that First Thessalonians 5 passage, we are not destined for wrath, but we are destined for salvation. God has destined it, or he has predetermined, or we know it's going to happen, 
because of what the past, our past, our story, our world history, and our personal history says, which is Jesus came into the world to die for me. All right, and then 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so each of these could be a sermon unto themselves, but let me just ask you this. Are you doing these things? Do you believe they're true? And is this what your life looks like? It's not do them perfectly in order to be saved. It's this is who you are now. This is what we get to do. This is what our lives in light of the future should look like. Or maybe they are looking like and you just haven't thought about them in like end times terms or urgent terms before. But basically what we're seeing here is this fourfold thing of, from top to bottom, waging spiritual battle against the lies of the devil, living evangelistically towards non-believers, encouraging other Christians with the gospel they already profess, and looking at your own life under a microscope daily. What do you believe? Do you really believe the gospel? So watch your doctrine. Watch the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the gospel closely, and then look at your life. Are you like one of those wise virgins? Are you ready, prepared, looking forward to seeing the God who made you and who remade you when you've wandered from him. And, and the good news is you should. I mean, that this isn't like a, well, some of, you, some of you should. And if you're not saved, I guess that's true. But it's like for all of you, the point is repentance and belief. It's not get your life together. That's not the eschatological message. If Jesus meant that, he would not have spoken that parable in Matthew 25. The end would have been, I took the best of the five versions, the most righteous. That's not what he says. He takes the most ready, which means the most ready in the future probably will consist of really bad people. Maybe worse than you. Probably worse than you. Maybe not. Maybe you. Maybe me. But whatever you think of when you think of like really bad people, let's put it that way. Um, whatever. Yes, this is bad. But it's, the point is, or not what I intend. The point is like, that's us, but also the point is we're going to be surprised because if grace is the last word, then that's who's going to sit around God's banqueting table at the wedding. Really, 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 really bad people who have trusted in Jesus' blood to save them. And they get to dine with God, while the others who are, might be pretty good people who are sleepy and careless and heard and understood the gospel, they understood that Jesus was like a bridegroom. They, they kind of believed he was coming back, actually. But they didn't really care to, like, really believe it and to have, like, a flask of oil by them because that's kind of crazy. And should I really be involved in a church like that much? Should I really be under accountability? Should I really pray? Should I really be thankful? Should I really have to take communion? Is all this stuff important? You know, and the answer is yes, because it all points us to Jesus, but the carelessness can lead us away, and it just does every day. And, I, and I've seen it. A lot of you guys have seen it. If you haven't, you will. People wander all the time. They wander from, from Christ. They prove themselves not saved. They prove themselves as one who's never started the race, even though it looks like they have. This is actually leading to next week's sermon on can you lose your salvation. So a teaser for next week, but one of you asked about that, so we'll talk about that next week. Um, and the answer is no, you can't. <laughs> but, but yes, you kind of can, but no, you really can't. So we'll talk more about that next week. So <laughs> that's really the whole sermon. 
but we'll talk a few more minutes about it. But, but there is urgency, and so that, that's what I want you guys and myself to leave with is, we think about the end, you should be greatly encouraged in a Christ who has saved you, who's loved you to the point of death and back, who spent his strength, spent his last, last breath gasping for air, bleeding out on that cross under the sun, suffering for you and me because he loved us so much. That's the encouragement. The urgent piece is we can't not do anything with that, right? Like Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says, when you hear about a, a Christ like that, you crucify him or you bow to him. But you can't just say, well, you know, yeah, some guy walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago, but that doesn't matter. I mean, really, if it's true, you know, it does, right? It, it, it demands a response. This is why the first disciples, when Peter preached in, in Acts 2, what should we do with this, Peter? You're telling me so that Jesus is alive now? That's the right question, right? What should we do with this? What am I supposed to do? And his answer is, don't really do anything. You repent, you believe, and you're baptized. You, you just identify now as one of his loved ones, one he died for, and you walk away in freedom for the rest of eternity. So th this is an invitation, guys. And we're, we're going to take communion now, we'll, and I'll shift to that here in a second. But this is what eschatology, as a particular doctrine, or, or like part of theology, invites us to. It's not separate from the gospel. It is the gospel. It's part of the gospel. And it only exists as it does in the Bible because of what Jesus did for us first on the cross and for his resurrection. So believe, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for today, for what this, this area of theology means. It means everything um, in as much as it points us to who you are, your character, the way you're going to come back as a righteous judge, full of wrath, which is a good thing because evil's a bad thing, but also um, full of grace towards those who believe and that, that urgency of you're coming back for, for like brides. You're coming back for a bride. This is, this is relational. And so help us to know your voice. Speak to us. Come find us. Rescue us. Help us to understand how to read the Bible better, how to pray in a relational way, not just for our sore hips or something like that, which you care about, but they're not as important. They're just not as important as other things. And so to shift maybe the way we pray and, um, and re receive grace and love from the people of God, namely your church, and, and many other things, um, we, we pray for help in that corporately too, not individually, but as, as a church, help us to snatch others from the fire, to quench the lies of the devil, to encourage one another, other Christians in the gospel that we already know, and to watch our lives closely and to watch our doctrine even closer. In Christ we pray, amen.